Good morning, and welcome to Cityscape. I'm George Borarki. Tucked away in a tranquil setting in New York's Catskill Mountains is a place called Maury's Camp. New York City is only 90 miles away, but when you're surrounded by woodlands, streams, and a small lake, it seems more like 900 miles in the distance. Coming up in this morning's show, we'll have more on this camp and how it's helping to transform the lives of inner-city kids. I think it's the energy of being in a place where you feel believed in. Camp is a place where childhood memories are made. But for producer Bill Palladino, an adolescent event that happened on the streets of New York City is forever etched in his mind. His story is ahead on Cityscape. At 15, there's a feeling of invulnerability. And later, we'll pay a visit to a Long Island museum that's sure to strike a chord with guitar enthusiasts. Our goal with this museum is to create the first open-to-the-public gallery of the most exotic guitars ever built. First this morning, summer camp typically involves things like swimming, canoeing, and crafts. And at Maury's Camp in the Catskills, inner-city kids experience all that and more. The camp has a unique history. I asked executive director Don Ewing to tell us about the Maury in Maury's camp. Maury Stein was was a big man um, physically and also just to people who knew him. He was a guy who who believed in people. Uh, Maury was the owner and director of a place called Camp Echo Lake up in Lake George, New York. He saw the vision of just being able to provide camp to all kids, not just kids who could afford it. And to that end, had had established his own programs at the end of his summer season, but wanted something bigger. Unfortunately, as he was kind of seeking that out through something called the American Camp Foundation, um, he perished in a plane crash coming back from one of those meetings. Based on all the things Maury had done for so many people, we knew it wasn't going to be a plaque or a scholarship or, or a nice, you know, something to the side. It had to be alive, and Maury's camp was really born from that. Um, friends, colleagues, family members said, we got to do something big, and big was something, was, was something big that was going to last forever. And here we are 11 years later, and it's something that's going to last forever. Why don't you paint a picture for this place with your words, those folks back in New York City who are not here to see the beauty that we're seeing today. Maury's Camp is a beautiful place, and I think when you, when you pull onto the property, the camp property, um, you feel an energy here. Uh, some people will say it's Maury. Um, I think it's the kids. I think it's the energy of being in a place where, again, you feel believed in. It's a traditional camp program, so we have the swimming and the nature and the fine arts and the things you would see in a, in a traditional camp program. But the overlay, the music ascension program, uh, a nutrition and wellness program, a very strong educational program, a program that's really wrapped from the very first year, a kid going into the fifth grade, talking about leadership, talking about what it is to be a leader, not only here, uh, but a leader in your community, in your school, at home. Um, When you wrap all those things together, when you wrap seven years of those kind of experiences together, starting with your youngest campers and going to your oldest, and then layer on top of that our alumni staff who've been through this in some cases for 11 years, you have an environment, a community that's filled with, like I said, that belief, that sense of hope, that sense of this can be something that we can take out of this place um, with its fresh air, with its, with its openness, and take back to those communities that we come from. So I think that's what this place is about. Tell me about the kids who come to Camp Mori. Where do they come from? What kinds of backgrounds do they have? 
We actually pull our kids from six different areas. Uh, we work with a small school district in Westchester. Uh, we work with the entire Bridgeport, Connecticut school district. We work with a community-based organization in Amityville, Long Island. We work with a public school in the Bronx, and we work with an after-school beacon program in Spanish Harlem. Our kids are coming to us because they're kids who try. They may not necessarily be first, most, or best, but they're kids who are showing up. Uh, they're kids who, given a platform, um, have an opportunity to be something more than maybe they think they can be. Most of our kids are coming from urban areas. Most of our kids are under a poverty line. Most of our kids are minorities. Um, all of our kids are believed in by some sort of strong support from a parent or a guardian or a teacher or a social worker. Our kids are kids who can do. Um, they're bright. They're capable. They're warm. They're giving. Um, like I said, they just need a chance, and Maury's Camp gives them the springboard. We, we start off setting the bar high, but I can't push the bar as high up as they do. Um, and that's really the exciting part about these kids is as they, as they progress through the program, not only at camp, but certainly in the year-round piece, they're pushing that bar up higher and higher and higher. Our alumni pushes the bar up higher and higher and higher, and they take that back. I mean, I think the, the biggest difference is not just necessarily and you certainly can relate to this, we always do better when somebody's watching, right? If the boss is in the room, if the teacher's in the room. Where we really see our best work is when we're not there, when we see our kids accomplishing and doing and achieving based on lessons learned and taken back to those places where we can't be just behind their shoulder. I guess that's what's so special about this camp is that they're just not coming here for the summer, leaving and going about their business. You're keeping track of them all year long. Right. Through year-round programs, um, monthly programs that are happening in their community or with our older kids, them coming back to our community, checking in, seeing what's going on. With the younger kids, we spend a lot of time in goal setting. You know, what are your goals at school? What are your goals at home? Um, what are your goals, you know, as it comes to camp time? With the older kids, a lot more focus on life skills. What are your opportunities and what choices are you making now that are going to influence those opportunities? You know, when you're 13, 14, 15, 16, choices that you're making can really affect what your future does look like. And when we have those chances to kind of check in on that monthly basis, and in many cases even more so, um, we're bringing them back into the camp environment where we certainly have a lot more control, starting where we left off instead of beginning every single year over and over again. So that is a huge difference for us. The other piece I would add is the, the partnership with the parents. Um, this wouldn't work if we didn't have those kinds of partnerships. This wouldn't work if we couldn't have those tough conversations with parents. This wouldn't work if the parents weren't afraid to pick the phone up and call us and say, we need your help. And I think that's another unique piece to what we do here. One thing that I keep hearing from the kids is that what they're really taking is a sense of responsibility home with them, that they're learning here, that they have to get up at a certain time, they have to do their chores, and they're sticking with them. Yeah, it's always kind of fun to talk to the parents for the first month or two and say, they say please, they say thank you, they pass things, they make their bed. And they're doing their homework. They're taking control and they're taking charge of things. You know, we talked about the goal setting. You know, when a kid says to us in a, in a year-round meeting, I want to do better in school, well, what does that mean? Let's be more specific. Let's be, if you're really going to take responsibility for it, tell me what that is. So that might mean, well, I, I need to move my seat away from my best friend who I talk to through the whole class, or I need to introduce myself to the teacher, or I need to hand my homework in on time, but to be a lot more intentional. So that responsibility piece, again, flows outside of the home, flows into school. And I think, you know, one of one of the parts to, to the Maurice Camp program is you have, to, you have to get yourself back here. And getting yourself back here means doing your best. Um, best might be a C, best might be an A+, but what does your best look like? So 
they know that they're, they're doing things that get them back here. Initially, that's maybe the, the impetus that says, I want to get back to camp. But what really happens is, as they do this through one, two, three, four years, well, they start to get other things. People recognize them as leaders. People see them as presidents or secretaries. People see them as people they want to be around because they're nice people. So then it becomes more of a habit than, I just want to get back to Maury's camp. So that responsibility piece is huge. Don Ewing is the executive director of Maury's camp. Instead of singing around a campfire, kids at the camp are exercising their vocal cords in a cabin-turned-recording studio. The Music Ascension program has been part of the camp's unique history since 1999. Two former campers helped to run the program. My name is Shante Dickerson. I have been here for 11 years, and I am an alumni of Maury's camp. My name is Rafael Rivera. I am from Queens, New York, and I was a camper back in the day when I first started. This camp basically gives um, kids a chance to get away from the city for a while and experience new things. And, like, it gives them opportunity to go camping and hiking. and you know They meet up with kids from different areas, and it's just a great opportunity for them to just have fun and enjoy. Now, obviously, it also gives them uh, an opportunity to get a little creative, and you're part of that process here. Yes, um, we run the, the MAP program, Music Ascension program. And it gives the kids the opportunity to make music and just be creative. You know, you never know one day one of these kids can make it. What do you think are the biggest challenges for them when they start with the Music Ascension program? Usually with us, we start with the sophomores. The frosh, we don't start with them because they have to get used to camp before they can come in here and get used to what this room and this place is about. But um, I think... The biggest challenge for a lot of them is just beginning to write because they'll come up with topics very easily, but then when you ask them, okay, sit down now and think about some things that you want to write about these topics, that's where they get a little stuck. But like I said, like me and Ralph are in here to help them. Their counselors are in here to help them. But most of the time, they go to each other, which is a really good thing because it's fine that we're in here, but when they go to each other, that makes it all the more sweeter because everything that they do comes from them. And tell us about finished products. I mean, obviously, you turn these around and, and you actually create CDs. Yeah, we have them record. We, like, they help us make a beat. Like, they let us know exactly what kind of rhythm they want. We make it. They, they lay their vocals down. And then we start adding different sounds. And then the finished product is after everything is recorded. Shantae Dickerson and Rafael Rivera helped to run the Music Ascension program at Maury's Camp. The program was started by this guy. My name is Pete Calvert. I've been working with Maury's Camp for eight years now. What I felt was let's take what's here already. Let's take the music that all the kids have within themselves and let's create a space for them to be creative. So the idea came to create a studio, a recording studio, where all these ideas had a forum and they could be put into a tangible end result. We're basically the senior boys group, so we say S for the seniors and the squad for a group. My name is Dave Corn Young, 13 years old, and coming here for three years from Manhattan. I mean, not the best like rapper or anything, but I know that one day I'll try to make my way to the top. They're coming from neighborhoods where um, there are a lot of things going on that I think they would prefer weren't going on. They can talk about things that are negative, and that's encouraged, but the music and the lyrics 
have to be towards something positive. True camper, one of a kind, being PG-1 is what stays on my mind. If a PG-1 is what I'm gonna be, then I'll make it so that everyone looks up to me. Love. Hate, pressure I'm feeling Four years in the camp and I'm still breaking the ceiling At the basketball court I'm keeping it real As the senior boys do they know how I feel, yo My name is Angelo Richardson uh, I'm 13 years old and I've been coming to Morris Camp for four years now uh, I'm from Bridgeport, Connecticut It's been, you know, a chance even though you may not want to To get your soul on words, you know And to sing it and show people what it's all about We was walking through the dining hall and smell some food Let's eat it, let's eat it, let's eat it, let's eat it We was chilling in the house, smell Sophia's food Let's eat it, let's eat it, let's eat it, let's eat it My name is Luisa Leolio I'm 13 and I'm from the Bronx, New York Our song is basically what we like the most, food Eat it off the plate, eat it, eat it off the plate. basically just being creative and showing whatever you want. My name is Aaron Coleman, I'm 13, I'm from Bridgeport. I've been coming here for four years now. I changed by looking more at the positive side. Our group is always hungry because we eat a lot of food. Let's eat it, let's eat it, let's eat it, let's eat it. You can always catch us eating that chicken noodle soup. Let's eat it, let's eat it, let's eat it, let's eat it. We was walking through the dining hall and smell some food. Let's eat it, let's eat it, let's eat it, let's eat it. We was chilling in the house, my Sophia's food. Let's eat it, let's eat it, let's eat it, let's eat it. Each summer, kids at Maury's camp write, record, and help engineer an album, including their songs. CDs are for sale at cdbaby.com. All proceeds benefit Maury's camp. Let them hop and eat it up. Let them hop and eat it up. Let them hop and eat it up. Camp is a great place to meet new friends and to make long-lasting memories. But for producer Bill Palladino, it's his teenage romps through the streets of New York City that have left a lasting impression. At 15, there's a feeling of invulnerability. One that at least for us boys emerges lightning fast, full-bodied, with little time for consideration or training. It hurtles us forward at breakneck speed to the next ridiculously foolish decision, often based on the simplest of questions. They all seem to have binary answers. Yes or no. Should or shouldn't. Stand or run. They sound simple enough, but take my word for it. For these kids, it's the equivalent of asking them to give you the square root of pi. Thusly, I justify to you the following story, based on authenticated facts from my youth, with the clarity and sureness of a lifetime of hindsight. The story occurs in the summer of 1974. The streets of New York were slick with the rising humidity of a record-breaking summer heat wave. My friends and I were strolling the Bronx on this day. Four of us, Dwayne, Eddie, Polly, and myself, and the mischief of youth took to the streets. One inspired invention seemed to be innocuous enough at the time. It was, as you'll see, aptly named and involved several of us standing abreast on the Tremont Avenue highway overpass, holding tight to the railing and trying to hit the windshields of passing vehicles with percussively jettisoned salivatory excretions. This, my friends, was bridge spitting.
At 15, there's a feeling of invulnerability. One that, at least for us boys, emerges lightning fast, full-bodied, with little time for consideration or training. It hurtles us forward at breakneck speed to the next ridiculously foolish decision, often based on the simplest of questions. They all seem to have binary answers. Yes or no. Should or shouldn't. Stand or run. They sound simple enough, but take my word for it. For these kids, it's the equivalent of asking them to give you the square root of pi. And thusly, I justify to you the following story, based on authenticated facts from my youth, with the clarity and sureness of a lifetime of hindsight. The story occurs in the summer of 1974. The streets of New York were slick with the rising humidity of a record-breaking summer heat wave. My friends and I were strolling the Bronx on this day. Four of us, Dwayne, Eddie, Polly, and myself, and the mischief of youth took to the streets. One inspired invention seemed to be innocuous enough at the time. It was, as you'll see, aptly named and involved several of us standing abreast on the Tremont Avenue highway overpass, holding tight to the railing and trying to hit the windshields of passing vehicles with percussively jettisoned salivatory excretions. This, my friends, was bridge spitting. time our viscous expulsions to coincide with the oncoming windshield of a vehicle. Four of us would typically stand two to a lane, taking turns calling out our intended target, horking up a big louie and then letting a rip. You sophisticates among you, I'm sure you think this is absurd, fruitless, and even disgusting, but there were serious experiences to be learned here. There were many things to take into account, the car's speed, its size, environmental considerations such as wind speed, direction, and the density of one's own saliva. Just the thing for a group of intrepid kids fresh out of Mr. Shenberg's junior high school earth science class. Inevitably, forays into this activity would end up with one of us hitting our target, striking home, if you will, then letting out a triumphant woohoo as we hightailed it back into the streets and alleys of the city, lest we be seen and then chased by angry victims. We'd successfully done this scores of times, infuriating everyone from New England tourists to limo drivers on their way to the city. It was a pretty safe practice, hurting no one and leaving most people yelling some epithet out the window, unintelligible in the roar of steady traffic below. This day, however, would be different, and I guess we knew it from the start. Dwayne and Eddie had, in a teenager's game, tried to ditch Polly and I earlier by jumping over a backyard fence and out of sight. We were distracted, filing down bingo chips on the sidewalk into dime-sized replicas for use in vending machines. By the time we looked up, they disappeared, and we lost track of them. Then, as Polly and I rounded the corner in front of the diner, we could see the other two in position over the southbound lanes of the highway several hundred yards ahead. It appeared to us that when they saw us, they bolted again, so we decided to give chase at least as far as the section of the bridge above the southbound lanes of the highway. For now, somewhat out of breath, we stopped to look over the rail, as there seemed to be some commotion down below. 
was a faint sound reminiscent of my friend Dwayne yelling my name from a distance. Yeah, well, I'll catch you later, I mumbled. Then the strangest thing happened. As Polly and I looked over the rail, we saw two large tractors, the type used for mowing, one in the median with a man standing on it pointing up at us. For one brief moment, I considered actually waving to the excited man on the tractor, but that's when I noticed the other one. It was situated more or less directly below us on the shoulder of the highway, and it was quite ominously missing its driver. It would be fair to admit to you that in my youth, I was never considered the fastest of lads, but there are times when the skills of split-second decision-making, complex math calculations, and critical problem-solving trump even the swiftest converse all-stars on the block. It all came together for me, probably a full two seconds before it struck Polly, which, in hindsight, is all the edge I needed. It started with the faint rustling of weeds near the stone bulwark of the bridge just ten yards to our left. Then, as if this thought were Captain Kirk materializing in the transporter room back from some distant planet far below, my neurons fired. Zap! Click! Pop! For God's sakes, Jim, I'm giving her all she's got! And I was off, running as fast as I could. After taking only a few steps, I could hear Polly behind me blurt something out just before he abruptly fell silent. As I turned to look, I could see him horror in his eyes, just as a big man in an orange jumpsuit placed a hammer-clawed hand on his shoulder. I was running at a pretty good clip now, but I swear to you that I could also see the man make a slow, purposeful motion with his other hand, as if wiping something wet and unpleasant from his brow. The last I saw of Polly, he was walking uncomfortably off-kilter as the man held firmly onto his left ear, pulling straight up towards the place only good kids get to go. It was about a week before we saw Polly again, but even then, he wouldn't talk to us. I guess that guy had marched him all the way back to his parents' house, stretching his ear practically over his head. His parents were not amused and grounded him for a week, and I don't know as if he ever had the nerve again for bridge spitting. Funny thing is, he didn't do it. Polly and I were a hundred yards away when it happened, but that never seemed to matter. Circumstantial evidence was all it took. We were simply in the wrong place at the wrong time, victims of a chronological quirk. By the time the tractor driver felt that sickly smack on the top of his head, the real culprits were long gone, and as he looked up following the pointed finger of his colleague, there we stood, me and Polly guilty as charged. And, and how could we even fight it? So how about it? You and me, you stand there. I'll stand over here. And when that 73 Ford Torino gets to about that light pole, just lean out, dig down deep and let her rip. There's no way they'll catch us. And at least not both of us. I'm Bill Palladino. You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Coming up in just a moment, we'll pay a visit to a Long Island museum where guitars are the main attraction. And later, the subway like you never heard it before. Stay tuned. There's more Cityscape on the way. Cityscape. 
From Graceland to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, there are a number of museums nationwide that pay homage to the world's great musicians, but few that honor their instruments. One museum on Long Island is attempting to do just that. Since 1922, the American Guitar Museum has been offering to the public a rotating showcase of rare and valuable instruments from all over the world. My name is Chris Ambadris, and I'm the director here at the American Guitar Museum in New Hyde Park. Our centerpiece in the main room is a Les Paul model facsimile. It's an exact replica of Gibson's Les Paul. It's 11 feet 6 inches tall. It's tunable, but there are no electronics in it. Les Paul was like one of the Thomas Edisons of the electric guitar. We have a whole corner devoted to him with all different types of things that you'd find at his house, including a Les Paul guitar that used to belong to him. He actually gave it to me as a present around 15 years ago. It's engraved behind the headstock. It says, To Chris, Keep On Picking, from Les Paul. I became interested in guitars probably when I was three or four years old and didn't start playing till I was about eight years old. I used to practice every single day, sometimes five hours or ten hours a day. I was very, very into it, and I was studying jazz. I started teaching guitar when I was about 16, and I opened up a little music store across the street from St. John's University when I was 21 years old. started collecting instruments, learning and repairing, developing a great clientele of real strong players that helped me with this museum. And they like what we're doing here, so they loan us instruments for the public to enjoy them. On this wall, we have all different types of fretted instruments from other countries. We have the Fado guitar, which has 12 strings, and that's from Portugal. We have a triangular-shaped resonator instrument right here known as the balalaika, and that is from Russia. And right next to that, we have the sitar that comes from India. This instrument actually uses a gourd as a resonator. In this glass case here, we have the original hammer punches from the D'Andrea Manufacturing Company. They manufacture 90% of all the picks on the market today, and they started in the early 1900s with these hammer punches punching out each pick individually out of actual tortoise shell. In this corner, we have the D'Angelico instruments. D'Angelico was the Stradivari of our time. He built his guitars from 1932 till he passed on in 1964. He built a total of 1,164 guitars. He started at serial number 1,000 and died at 1,164. In the center, we have a small jazz ukulele built by D'Angelico. It's the only one he built like this and this size. It's from 1932. It's his first blonde instrument. We have collectors actually coming from all over the world to see this piece. Our ceiling in this main room is fashioned like the inside of a D'Angelico. They're X-braced internally with sound holes on each side. If you look up at the ceiling, it would be as if you were laying inside the guitar and looking up at its construction. We have a 1965 Stratocaster in Olympic white. That's a pretty valuable year. That's the year that CBS took over the Fender Musical Instrument Company. This particular instrument was played on by Jimi Hendrix. It was never owned by him, but he did play on it. It belonged to his friend Earl. The instruments we have are instruments that are valuable on their own merit. 
not because someone special played them or because someone autographed them. Our goal with this museum is to create the first open to the public gallery of the most exotic guitars ever built. Chris Ambagis is the director of the American Guitar Museum on Long Island. For more information, check out AmericanGuitarMuseum.com. Thanks to producer Anne-Marie Fratoli for that segment. We leave you today not with the strumming of a guitar, but with a subway symphony. Producer Paul Overton put the following piece together using only the sounds of the New York subway system. So sit back and enjoy the rhythmic ride. That's it for this week's Cityscape. I'm George Goldarchy. Thanks for listening. The podcast of Cityscape gets support from WFUV's contributing members. Find out more at WFUV.org.